This year, Paul Landis, a Secret Service agent who was part of the Kennedy detail on November 22, 1963, has published a book about his memory of that dark day. In this essay, I reflect on Landis's claim and try to analyze the authenticity of it. The Landis Claim by Richard A. Ryman The author would like to thank and credit David Von Pine and Fred Litwin for research important to this article. Paul Landis, a Secret Service agent who accompanied President John F. Kennedy on his fateful motorcade through Dallas on November 22, 1963, has just written a memoir, The Final Witness, that has thrown some assassination aficionados in quite a tizzy. Now 88, Landis was just 28 when he rode on the side of the Queen Mary Secret Service automobile behind the presidential vehicle, heard shots fired at the president, and witnessed the frenzied aftermath as the motorcade sped to Parkland Hospital for its sad denouement. Landis has been interviewed several times in the last 20 years, but at no time in the 60 years since Dallas as he publicly told the story he unspools in the book published earlier this year. He claims a discovery that of necessity decouples Kennedy's first wound from the shot that is supposed to have caused all the wounds of Texas Governor John Connolly. Landis's late-breaking news, if true, means that Kennedy's back wound and Connolly's injuries were caused by separate bullets fired at almost exactly the same time. And if true, the single-bullet theory and the conclusion of no conspiracy both become untenable. Landis contends that this reasoning is based on an extraordinary experience he kept to himself for nearly 60 years. He writes that when he arrived at Parkland and helped Mrs. Kennedy out of the presidential vehicle, he saw a whole bullet laying on the top of the seat back against which President Kennedy had rested. He picked it up without anyone noticing and put it in his pocket. Instead of disclosing this vital evidence, he slipped it onto Kennedy's operating table in trauma room one while in use, explaining that it deserved to be with the president. He surmised that the bullet, tangled in the sheet he placed it on, was later transferred to JFK's stretcher, which was somehow placed alongside Connolly's. Then, somehow, the bullet was jiggled from the first gurney to Connolly's stretcher, where it was found later by a hospital employee. So, Landis's bullet was the whole bullet, later called by conspiracists a magic bullet, after the Warren Commission and others maintained that it was the shot that caused JFK's first injury and those of the governor. Since Landis found it atop the seat back against which both Kennedys had sat, he surmises it must somehow have been undercharged with gunpowder, barely entered the president's back, and then some way popped back out and onto the seat. There are more somehows and some ways in Landis's story than in a Rube Goldberg cartoon. Landis's claim crashes against the immovable object of all that we now know about the second shot fired at JFK. The single bullet that caused JFK's back and throat wound and all of Connolly's injuries. 
For belief's sake, it is not enough that Landis' telling of the story be consistent with his own memory. It must somehow actually align with, or at least not contradict, what is absolutely known to be true about the bullet he claims to have discovered in the presidential limo. Vincent Bugliosi memorably related a truism that exactly addresses the substance of Landis's claim, one that his years as a prosecutor taught him well. So, Bugliosi. Determining whether or not the bullet that hit Kennedy also went on to strike Connolly is mostly academic. We can have all the confidence in the world by an examination of the physical evidence and the utilization of common sense that it did do so. When you can establish the single bullet theory by reference to evidence other than the Zapruder film, you necessarily know that the film itself cannot, by definition, show something else. Hence, Bugliosi. This, of course, is precisely what Landis is disputing. The established fact that the second shot struck both the president and the governor. If we replace the Zapruder film with the Landis claim, Bugliosi's argument, as modified, highlights the real Achilles' heel in the agent's new book. It simply cannot be true. Unlike Landis's story, the single bullet theory has been so repeatedly confirmed by an ever-layering accretion of evidence since 1963 that only as a scientific finding in the same class as the biological theory of evolution or Newton's gravitational theory can it be considered theoretical. What we talk about when we talk about the single bullet theory is in the practical sense in which we all live our lives and make decisions both mundane and profound, the single bullet fact or conclusion. This is why Bugliosi is correct in writing that the Zapruder film must necessarily either be misunderstood or must visibly support the single bullet theory. Unlike the frames of a tiny 35mm film with blurs, shadows, and spaces in between, however, what Landis is arguing is at least unambiguously clear. Unfortunately for him, it runs afoul of the single bullet fact, making it impossible to believe. While the Warren Commission committed many errors, mostly errors of omission, they largely had to do with events before and after, but not for the most part during the assassination itself. Basically, the major omissions were three. CIA assassination attempts against Castro, hidden by the CIA. The motives of Oswald, which might have been illuminated by the same and additional evidence withheld by the FBI and CIA and the autopsy photographs, which the commission never examined. Scrutinizing the events in Dealey Plaza, the Warren Commission made its greatest and lasting contribution to our assassination knowledge, the single bullet conclusion. This was a finding that comprehensively showed how with only three shots, one of which missed, a single gunman could cause all the carnage of the assassination. With technological capabilities that pale against those developed since, 
The commission and its staff were able to show that the shot that preceded the fatal headshot had to produce JFK's first injury and all of Connolly's. We know this because of its own internal logic and because it has stood the test of time. The single bullet conclusion, the only original finding of the commission, accomplished by a rigorous restaging of the assassination, based on the trajectory required of a bullet passing through both men, has been validated by every subsequent such test, each more technically sophisticated than its predecessor. We may never know why Oswald killed JFK. The same cannot be said about how he did it. But it wasn't just the Warren Commission findings that need to be explained away in order to make the Landis claim fit the facts. It is also the never-conflicting evidence accumulated since 1964 of the single source of the bullet that passed through the two men's bodies, traceable alike and only to the bullet found on the Connolly stretcher. This demonstrates beyond all doubt that the two men were wounded by one bullet, one that traveled on its own much farther than the back of JFK and beyond the back seat of the presidential limo. First, the trajectory evidence. Dr. Malcolm Perry at Parkland Hospital, who performed a tracheotomy on Kennedy's throat, reported that a wound of entrance or exit already existed in the throat when he obliterated it to perform the tracheotomy. The doctors at Bethesda Hospital, upon hearing this, judged that this throat wound was the wound of exit for the bullet that hit his upper back. The Warren Commission lined up these two wounds and surveyed a trajectory backward from the throat wound to the back wound and then to the sixth floor window, where FBI agent Robert Frazier was perched viewing the car through Oswald's scope. The angle of trajectory from that window that was measured when the car reached a point in which the stand-in for Connolly was directly obscured from the vantage point of the window by the stand-in for JFK was an angle of declension of slightly more than 17 degrees. Even more important, Connolly's back wound, a wound of entrance, also was directly on this same line of declension, slightly more than 17 degrees. There were changes in the bullet's trajectory after the bullet entered Connolly, but not very much. The angle of declension through Connolly's body, including the grazing of his rib, the exit from his chest below his right nipple, the wound to his wrist, and the superficial entry into his left thigh, was measured at 25 degrees. This could easily be explained by the slight course change caused by the bullet's grazing of Connolly's rib. Perhaps more importantly, Connolly suffered an elongated, not round, entrance wound in his back, showing that the bullet was yawing when it hit the governor. A bullet does not yaw unless it has first hit another object, this connects the two men's wounds. A further link is provided by the nick in the knot of Kennedy's tie and the front shirt with a puncture in the shirt behind the tie with cloth and threads protruding outward, 
consistent with a transiting, exiting bullet. A bullet could not have exited JFK at that point without striking Connolly or something or someone else in the car. Its absence from the car and presence on the Connolly stretcher showed that it stayed with Connolly between the car and the hospital. So much for an undercharged bullet. A strike by a yawing bullet could also have caused the slight trajectory change once it entered Connolly. The Zapruder film by itself absolutely demonstrates that Kennedy and Connolly were struck at the same or nearly the same time. This is because Kennedy is seen first reacting at Zapruder frame Z224 when Connolly's lapel flap pushed outward. If separate bullets caused the two men's wounds at this time, the car would have contained bullet fragments from three bullets, since there were also fragments from the headshot at Zapruder frame 313, or, in addition to the fragments from the third shot, two whole bullets in the car following the assassination. But in conformity with the single bullet theory, only one whole bullet, the stretcher bullet, and the fragments from the headshot can be traced from the bullets that struck true. Bullet forensics following the Bugliosi rule have further lined up with the single bullet theory in the years since 1963 by narrowing the number of shots that could have hit both Kennedy and Connolly to one. Dr. Charles Gregory, Connolly's surgeon, noticed tiny bullet remnants or flakes from Connolly's wrist and removed most of them. Those removed and those that were left in Connolly's wrist totaled the weight of a postage stamp and were no more than 1.5 grains. The FBI weighed a random assortment of Western cartridge bullets for a Manlicher Carcano rifle and came up with an average of 161.2 grains per cartridge. Since the whole bullet found at Parkland weighed 158.6 grains, as many as 2.6 grains were unaccounted for, more than enough to account for the weight of the Connolly fragments. There were no flakes found in Kennedy's neck. In the 1970s, the House Select Committee on Assassinations accomplished a breakthrough that proved beyond all doubt that the stretcher bullet must have coursed through Connolly. Dr. Vincent Gwynn, an expert on neutron analysis, discovered that the Manlicher Carcano cartridges made by Western each had its own unique antimony contents, making it possible from the fragments from the JFK autopsy and Connolly surgery to determine which bullets had struck which men. The lead and other material that was found to have extruded from the deformed base of the whole bullet proving it was not, nor could it have been, pristine, contained exactly the same silver and antimony matter as the fragments taken from Connolly's wrist. The unique antimony content in the fragments from Kennedy's brain matched those of the remaining bullet fragments found in the car. Even though no fragments were found in Kennedy's initial wound, which is hardly surprising since the bullet hit no bone there, the key is that there was no separate whole bullet or bullet fragments in the car as there would have had to be 
if Kennedy was first hit by a bullet other than Connolly's. When we review the past findings, often painstaking, of the researchers and investigators whose shoulders we all stand on, we see that there was simply no whole bullet for Landis to have found in the presidential limo when he arrived at Parkland. Remember that Landis claims two things. He first found the whole bullet, later found in a Parkland hallway, and that the whole bullet struck Kennedy alone. If that were true, it either would not have extruded lead and antimony, which we know it did, or this material would have been found in Kennedy, which we know it was not. Connolly's whole bullet remained in Connolly as he was wheeled into Parkland on a gurney. Moreover, the gold-looking bullet fragments that Landis said he spotted in a pool of blood on the back seat could only have been, if he saw them at all, laying on the car floor toward the front, exactly where one would expect them to be after shattering the windshield of the car. He said he left them alone in the back seat. If true... Clearly, they were not the fragments in front of the car. Unfortunately for Landis, no other bullet fragments than those that hit the windshield were found in the car. Landis's manifold problems only begin with this claim to have discovered a bullet that could not have been there. He writes in his new book that when he found the whole bullet in the limousine at Parkland Hospital, he realized, quote, this was important evidence, end of quote. He was terrified, he implied, by the prospect that it would be lost to history if, say, a souvenir hunter took it. But unbelievably, Landis himself twice caused the same fate. First, by placing it on a gurney where it might have been lost, telling nobody at the time, and then by waiting 60 years to tell the tale necessary to prevent its eternal loss. What if he had died before now? Speaking of why he didn't discuss his find in his official statements days after the assassination, he said, and I quote, it didn't seem an important detail to mention at the time, close quote. But why would important evidence become unimportant days later? He continued to tolerate the potential loss to history until now, when he might profit from it with a book. Further, he now insists he pocketed the bullet for the purpose of handing it over to Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman, a mission that quickly changed when he now says he placed the bullet on the operating table in Trauma Room 1, on which Kennedy's body lay. But the body was never moved from the gurney, and Landis was never seen by anyone who was in the room. Moreover, Kennedy's stretcher was never placed near Connolly's gurney when the latter was moved from a separate operating theater to a downstairs hall. Landis further writes that he felt relief after placing the bullet on the president's table-slash-gurney. Quote, It would be found and proved to be helpful, close quote. The obvious response for someone holding this point of view would be to check later to make sure that it was in fact found. 
But Landis said that he paid no attention to the nine months investigation that followed, did not read the Warren report until 2018, and was unaware of the single bullet theory until 2014 when he read about it in Josiah Thompson's conspiracy book, Six Seconds in Dallas. In his book, The Final Witness, Landis makes an incredible statement. Quote, Once I'd left the bullet on the president's gurney, I forgot about it. I'd done my job. I had saved and prevented an important piece of evidence from becoming lost. Close quote. Aside from the first sentence, these comments were nonsensical. He had not done his job, which was to enforce chain of custody rules, nor had he prevented the bullet, if his story were true, from being lost. The bullet, from Landis's perspective, had become lost and misattributed, but still he remained silent. Nor did one have to read either of these chronicles to be aware of the controversy. It was played up in the mainstream television, news magazine, and newspaper coverage of the criticism of the Warren Commission in 1966 and 1967, when there was as much scrutiny of the investigation by the media, including Life magazine, the Saturday Evening Post, and CBS News, as by the conspiracy writers. The bullet found on Connolly's stretcher was a feature of most, if not all, of these accounts. Perhaps, though, we need go no further than 1963 with this thought experiment. After all, it is simply unbelievable that any agent aware of his professional responsibilities and having already decided to transfer his find to Roy Kellerman, would then part silently with his alleged discovery and simply forget about it. As of this writing, we can identify no less than eight different versions of the story told by Landis. Thanks to the research of David Von Pine and Fred Litwin, we know much about how Landis's recollections of his encounter with the bloody limo has continuously evolved, always in a self-contradicting but ever more portentous direction. In November 1963, Landis remembered retrieving a hat, purse, and cigarette lighter, but nothing assassination-related. His second comment in 1979 was, as Von Pine showed, important in that it officially confirmed that his memory had not changed in the interim. The House Select Committee on Assassinations contacted him to confirm once again for the record his official statement of 1963, which he then did without embellishment. One might count this as a second iteration since, in light of future developments of the story, it attested to a memory that was stable for at least 16 years. Things began strikingly to change in 1983, with a third version, when he spoke to Tim Curran of the Associated Press. Quote, Landis said that when he got to the Kennedy limousine outside the hospital, the president had already been taken inside, but he helped Mrs. Kennedy out. He said that there was a bullet 
fragment on the top of the back seat that he picked up and gave to somebody, close quote. Another evolution in the exegesis of the backseat story came with his fourth version in 1988. Fred Litwin found reporting in the Columbus, Ohio Dispatch, November 20th, 1988, that, quote, arriving at the hospital's emergency room, he, Landis, remembers going by the president's convertible and seeing the blood on the seat. And then he saw something else. I distinctly remember there was a bullet fragment on the seat, which I picked up and handed to somebody. Close quote. Landis would later say that reporters misquoted him. And since these remarks certainly undermine his present credibility, he may well be referring to these reports. But the words from two different reporters not only are nearly identical, but the latter includes a direct quotation from Landis himself. More damning is the fact that there was a procedure for forensically examining criminal scenes that Landis had to have been trained to follow. Frazier, the FBI agent, was assigned the task of finding, collecting, and logging all extraneous fragments from the car, and he conducted his work that weekend. For Landis to have given the fragment to someone he did not know or could not remember was either a fiction or a scarcely believable disgrace. Landis contributed a fifth version in 2010 when speaking to Gerald Blaine for the Kennedy Detail, an important study of the assassination as remembered by the Secret Service agents. Even though this book was written by his brother, Agents, Landis would not divulge anything to them except that he stayed close to Mrs. Kennedy and found a bullet fragment on the rear seat top, then moved it to the seat. Now Landis was not handing it to somebody, but moving it down to the seat. Even that was hard to believe, since Frazier found two fragments, not one, on the front seat floor and linked to the known bullets. Nor did Landis describe in the Kennedy detail being in the trauma room at all. Just four years later, Clint Hill realized he was listening to an even more serious error in judgment, if true, when Landis in version six told him that there was a bullet on the rear top seat, but it was whole and pristine a mirror image of CE-399. Hill says that Landis told him then that he placed it on a gurney in the hall, not in the operating room. The story's import was certainly growing, but not its logic, especially since it would change with each telling to follow. Hill declined Landis's request that he endorse his book and has stated that it contains too many inconsistencies to believe. It just doesn't make any sense to me, said Hill, that he's trying to put it on the president's gurney, close quote. One hopes that Hill publishes his 2014 email exchange with Landis to verify that his memory is correct as to these details. If Hill is correct, 
Every one of Landis's stories is undermined by the important differences in each, which make all of his stories appear too shape-shifting to believe. In 2016, when Landis spoke to the Sixth Floor Museum, he told a story about Parkland that was much like his 1963 statements. In other words, stating that nothing bullet-related was to see there. In this seventh version, he did nothing that he had not already officially reported. His book is his eighth version, and it is at once the longest time in coming and most original, as well as most personal and fraught, coincidentally or not, both a memoir for the record and for the market. The Landis claim in its present iteration is further undermined by his egregious lack of understanding of the implications of his claims to the central mysteries of the assassination story, those of culpability and conspiracy. Incredibly, he has been consistent in one claim, namely that he remains confident in the lone gunman theory, even though one cannot possibly believe both it and the accuracy of his memory. In 2016, he told his local newspaper that Oswald did it and acted alone. Quote, he sounds almost proud of not having read the Warren Report, close quote, concluded the paper. He said they got it right about no conspiracy and that Oswald was the lone actor, but blew it with the single bullet theory, close quote. Since the Kennedy back wound was the second shot he heard, his undercharged bullet must have been one of four shots, not the three he impossibly maintains. Four shots mean no lone gunman. His thoroughgoing confusion about the facts, as research has allowed us to know them, destroys his credibility. Today, Landis expresses relief that the Warren Commission never interviewed him. Many readers have expressed surprise, even shock, that he was not questioned. But this is no surprise. Landis left two single-spaced accounts of nine pages in total and divulged nothing in those pages suggestive of further important knowledge. It was common for the Warren Commission to interview witnesses who had not provided their knowledge in other ways, as Landis had, and to interview those who had testified in writing only if they provoked further questions, which the Landis statements did not. For more than 40 years, he was silent about his most sensational claim, one that only he could divulge. Landis may have done one service to history. He has unknowingly rehabilitated the Zapruder film, which until now has largely complicated if not damaged our understanding of what happened in Dallas. Gerald Posner is almost surely incorrect when he writes that the Zapruder film was necessary to show that one man acting alone could have been responsible for all bullet shots and traces. Without the Zapruder film, three shots would have been found in the window and attributed to the assassin, three entry wounds would have been found, there would have been no compressed time frame to ponder, no reason to question one gunman's capacity to kill 
with a bolt-action rifle. With no reason to investigate a single bullet theory, the Warren Commission would have had more time, perhaps, to avoid the mistakes that they made. They would not have described a brilliant but complicated story of how one bullet caused wounds in both men, an exercise made necessary by the Zapruder film, but one whose complexity guaranteed that it would not be read or understood by most Americans. Without the Zapruder film, the conspiracists would not have been able to step into this comprehension gap with a simple story of a so-called magic bullet meant to obfuscate and deceive and possessing all of the misleading but mesmerizing power of the simple explanation. The facts of the assassination would not have become legend, to paraphrase John Ford, and the legend, rather than the facts, would not have been printed. But now, Paul Landis' story suddenly provides a reason to see in the Zapruder film a source of clarification, rather than mystification. If we really examine the film and see all that is there, we see signs of a first shot that missed and a second shot that hit both men in the same film frame. We see evidence of a spinal injury to Kennedy, suggestive of a shot that fully passed through his throat, and we see body alignments that left such a shot nowhere to go but into the governor. We see a frame, Z-224, providing evidence of a single shot striking both men at the same time. We see both men subsequently and grievously wounded. Such a shot could not have stopped at JFK's back. And we see a film that disproves the Landis claim, while fully aligning with the myriad trajectory investigations and the bullet forensics as they have come to us over long years. The Zapruder film was not necessary to tie Oswald to the assassination, but it does put paid to the Landis claim. Following the scientific method means we never close the door to evidence that might disprove the single bullet conclusion or any other theory. But just as one should not hold their breath waiting for the evidence that disproves gravity or species evolution, it requires evidence greater than an allegation to topple the towering edifice of support for the single bullet. Without corroboration of the Landis claim, for which there so far is little or none, the components of that edifice constitute a barrier to belief, not to the single bullet but to this newest aspirant for meme status, that of the backseat bullet. And so the backseat bullet can join prayer man, badge man, and umbrella man among the alphabet soup of conspiracy conceits that deserve attention only by students of psychology and conspiracy culture. While Paul Landis has been silent all these years, science and shoe leather, metaphorically speaking, has had much, much to say. Sixty years is a long time for sifted evidence to accumulate and tell its story. We simply need now to listen to it.
And thanks for listening to this essay on Audibly Speaking. This is your host, Rick Ryman. Happy listening.